welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. very practical issues that we, we all face in this current culture. Um, they attend us in our personal lives when it comes to uh, marriage and sexual union and our families. Um, they also come to us via challenges in the culture around issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so some of these things are indeed very practical. You may recall, too, that in our lectures on the Trinity that we did a lot of work in the history of the doctrine. We spend a considerable amount of time linking up with some of the studies of our New Antioch students uh, in early church history. And so we, we trace the doctrine of the Trinity through the early church and into medieval times and, and, uh, and then into Reformation and, and modern times as well. And uh, again, it may seem like there is perhaps a stark contrast between what we looked at there and the way we progressed and the fact that um, so much that we face in this day and age is, um, you might say, painfully new. New things that are happening all around us, new terminology which has never before been used. Um, we may remark that the, you know, the 80-year-old woman that knows her God and her Bible like the back of her hand um, you know, may find herself completely lost in this culture trying to understand what would be called issues of sex and gender these days. But even there, we'll see that there is some considerable overlap, and, and in both areas, um, both in the areas of the depth of doctrine, uh, as we compare the lectures on the Trinity to now these lectures on sex and gender, and the... Uh, the historical aspect of what we will be learning um, on sex and gender. So considering the depth of what we will can be contemplating on sex and gender, sex and gender uh, affect us at the deepest level of our lives. Um, 
Every single person, as we will unfold, is made in the image of God, but not merely the image of God, but made in the image of God as male or female. And that affects us not only at the level of our bodies, but at the levels of our interrelationships, our personalities, how we carry out the the vocation God has given us, how we lean into the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Gender affects everything. We are created for for marriage. We are created for procreation, a, um, a generalization that I'll unpack, but an important generalization nevertheless. We'll see that, in fact, that there are, in our next lecture, Trinitarian foundations to the doctrine of, uh, of sex and gender, and that this is very deep. And in fact, it may be that some of the challenges that we face currently in culture cause us to go back to Scripture and to pull out things that were always there, but perhaps we never saw before. Uh, but as we're faced now with new challenges, we need to go deeper and, and pull out what was already there, but, um, but perhaps we, we, just, we, we discover anew. And that leads us to um, the issue of kind of what's contemporary and, and, what is, and what is ancient, even though we will not be looking through kind of a historical lens, very much at least in this series of lectures. Uh, we'll do a little bit of that um, when we get to contemporary issues and how we arrived at this, this new day and age in which we've got uh, things like sexual orientation and gender identity. We'll do a little bit of that. Um, but predominantly, we will not be you know, walking through a, a history, if you will, of sex and gender. And yet, what we will see is that this work really is to some degree a work of retrieval. That we have progressed in our understanding, although perhaps it is better stated as a regression, uh, we have progressed in our understanding of, uh, in our culture of sex and gender to the place where we really need to go back and see what it is we have left and how it is we've arrived here and, and what we can learn from centuries ago, perhaps even millennia ago, uh, because the word of God is timeless. Uh, as we do that, we may find that there are new things that we can build upon these old foundations. Nevertheless, the history of sex and gender is not something we want to leave. This morning, or not this morning, I, that may not be the last time I say that. Uh, I'm used to preaching on a Sunday morning, and <laughs> so that frequently comes out of my mouth. This evening, rather, um, what I want to do as, by way of introduction of this series, is first of all to um, go over where we will, kind of where we'll be going alongside the, uh, the guidelines that you have there. Um, and so we'll take a look, very, uh, just kind of give you a very brief overview of our series. Uh, then I, I want to talk about a couple of emphases that will characterize this series. Um, emphases that may have to do particularly with our, the call of New Antioch uh, to prepare young people in this day and age for the world in which they will they will need to interact in, not just right now, but in the days to come. Um, that, that'll impact our, our series, but also perhaps to some degree the fact that it's, that it's me and, and uh, what kind of emphases I personally will bring to the table uh, alongside some of my experience and, and research. So we'll talk about emphases. 
um, after talking about the overview. And then I'm going to finish this lecture with, with unfolding some definitions uh, that I think are going to be very helpful. You'll want to have your, um, your notebook out for that um, because uh, defining sex and gender um, may be straightforward or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's something that we need to really look into and, and define very carefully. And I will try to do that uh, at the end of this lecture. So first of all, let's, um, let's take a kind of a quick overview of where we will be going in this series. As Pastor Tim mentioned, um, seven weeks with two lectures in each evening. Uh, this evening, we have this uh, introduction, uh, as well as then in the next lecture, the Trinitarian Foundations of Sex and Gender. And in that, I will be arguing that uh, our understanding that we built in the last lecture series, if you were here or, or have listened to that, um, in the Trinity, that this is the foundation uh, really of everything else in creation and redemption. It's, it's based on, it's, it's grounded upon, it's, it's, uh, it's an image of our triune God and how he has, well, imaged himself in the world. And that is certainly the case for anthropo anthropology, and it is certainly the case for, more particularly, sex and gender. So we'll be looking at the book of Genesis um, in considerable detail, um, although perhaps also from sort of a, uh, a kind of an overarching way as well, and kind of taking a look at some of these Trinitarian foundations. It will, it will stretch you a little bit. It'll be the most sort of philosophical lecture. Uh, that we will that we'll look at, but uh, I hope that it will introduce some key ideas that we will then develop perhaps in more practical ways. Um, in the week following, we will take a look at the goodness of gender. What is good about being male? What is good about being female? And I believe that this really is the question of our day. I do. I believe it is. I believe we live in a world in which... Uh, Gender, even though it's talked so much about, is, is, is undefined. And that it results in the fact that you've got girls growing up today that don't know what's good about being a girl. And boys growing up today that don't know what's good about becoming a man. And, uh, and so it, uh, this is something that we want to answer. And, and perhaps I will send you with some homework, even if it's just homework in your mind, to be thinking about this week. And, and that is to ask yourself the question, what is good about being my sex or my gender? And then what is good about what would be good about being the opposite sex or gender? Uh, and so uh, that would, I'm looking forward to that. Um, next, we'll be taking a look at, a, um, at attraction and dating. Uh, it is important. <laughs> You might think, uh, you know, is attraction really that important? I, I've actually done some, um, some reading on the studies on, on attraction. And, and I believe this is really important because as we'll develop a little bit today, male and female were created not merely as two, um, not merely as a pair, but they were created for one another, as if they were facing one another. And so attraction becomes quite important in that. Uh, what does that attraction look like? And, and how are male and female different in ways that, that attract? And then how should we functionally 
harness that and yet protect that um, in the process that leads up to marriage. And then first section under biblical teaching, if you have your guidelines there, uh, we'll be talking about marriage and procreation. Uh, and so we'll be discussing what marriage really is, the importance of the covenant and vows. We'll be talking about the, uh, how, how much procreation is intertwined with marriage, even if procreation isn't always the fruit of marriage. I will argue, I, I hope convincingly, because I think this is one of the key linchpins of the debates of our time around gender and sexuality, that marriage must be defined procreationally. I'm going to argue that it must be defined procreationally. Uh, and then lastly, under our section on biblical teaching, I'll be taking a look at the issue of sexual fidelity. Um, and I've chosen to use that language rather than sexual purity because I believe that even though sexual purity is of the utmost importance, that the bigger issue is, actual, is actually fidelity, faithfulness, under which the heading of purity comes. Uh, we'll also then take a look at the inverse of that, at sexual immorality, and why sexual immorality in its various guises and aspects uh, is so wrong, damaging, sinful, uh, why it says in the scriptures that the sexually immoral cannot inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then turning to contemporary issues, um, we'll take a look at the history of what I term the new pagan sexuality. It's not only me that has termed it that. Um, that's not uh, a new term with me or that I've invented, but um, we are living in days which there, there really aren't any boundaries and any rules. And I will argue that those that do exist are hanging by a precarious thread that threatens to be cut at any moment. Uh, but how did we get there? We're going to unfold that. We're going to take a look at things like um, the sexual revolution. Um, yeah, we may go back a little further. We'll, we'll consider the impact of Marxism. Um, feminism, and intersectionalism. So even though those may or may not be words that you understand uh, or have heard before, uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll understand some of the, the various threads that, that comprise the current ethos of our world so that you're prepared for it as you interact with it. And then we'll also consider sort of where, <laughs> where, this, uh, where this trajectory is going, which, which will probably be the scariest uh, aspect of our, of our lecture series. It may also be the most provocative. Um, I will have to be careful with my language, but at the same time, I believe that certain things are coming upon us, and I would rather you hear it from me first before you experience it in the world, um, raw and unfiltered, and, and maybe not understanding what's going on or how it could happen. Uh, and So we will eventually uh, unfold some of that, hopefully, with due caution, but also with due clarity. Then we'll begin to look at issues of sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in spe uh, specifically. And so we will we'll want to understand these things biblically and theologically. Uh, this is, of course, where much of the current debate lies and, and uh, indeed a lot of vitriol being thrown at the church and the Bible 
And so these are issues that we want to understand well. We want to be able to defend the scriptures. Uh, and we will take a look at them biblically and theologically. But not only that, we'll also take a look at what the reviewed literature says about these things. And I will show you, I'll demonstrate um, from the peer-reviewed literature itself, the secular peer-reviewed literature, that it actually, it actually supports the biblical truths that we find um, from God and Scripture. Uh, that these things are not... Uh, they, they don't play over and against. Science is not opposed to Scripture, but rather it, it upholds what we see in Scripture. And then finally, we'll turn to some contemporary church issues, including women in leadership, and uh, what sorts of opportunity, opportunities and pressures we may face in the future as the church. So, with that uh, being our overview of, of where it is we are going, I hope that you will be able to commit to being here all these weeks, and if you, uh, if you need to miss some, uh, I believe that they are being recorded, and so I'm thankful for that, and you should be able to eventually find them on the new Antioch um, website. Feel free to, to invite others and, and to come and, and, and listen. Um, so, what can we expect as far as emphases in these series of lectures? Well. Uh, a couple of things I think will characterize these lectures. Um, the first is an apologetic perspective, an apologetic perspective. And some of our new Antioch students uh, have uh, been going through a very rigorous um, course of study on, on apologetics. And I think that what we will find uh, fits in well, what we'll find here in this uh, lecture series fits in well with that emphasis. Um, but we want to equip you not only to survive a gender-confused and sexualized world, but to be able to transform it by the Spirit and the Word. Um, and so this requires a depth in sex and gender doctrine and, and study, uh, but it also um, means that we need to understand how the world thinks and how to respond in kind. And, and this gets into then some of the uh, peer-reviewed research that we'll take a look at. Um, not that you know you need to be a, a walking <laughs> um, study, being able to you know quote all sorts of statistics and so on and so forth, but to be able to to have an idea of why the world thinks the way it does, why it argues the way it does, and why that is incorrect in so many uh, ways. So an apologetic emphasis will certainly um, be part of what we're doing, and I think that that fits with uh, the purposes of New Antioch as well as with my own experience uh, on these issues. Uh, the other thing that I think really is going to emphasize and, and characterize um, this series of lectures is a historic and conservative theological approach. A historic and conservative theological approach. And I want to say something that, that may be a little provocative, and that is that uh, evangelicals, by and large, have terrible theology of sex and gender. Right? The evangelicals, by and large, have just terrible doctrine of sex and gender. Um, there are some exceptions to that. Um, but in general, in, in a lot of ways, I, I'd be careful about making this kind of an all-encompassing statement, but 
Uh, I think as a generalization, I would state that the Catholics, at least the, the thoughtful ones, generally have a better view uh, and doctrine of sex and gender. They've thought more comprehensively about these issues than many evangelicals have. And, uh, and I know that in, there's a lot of churches that you know, barely touch on these issues, and you see that reflected even in um, how, I, I would argue, and, and again, I may make some people upset who may be listening, but I would argue that you know, the, the acceptance of women in, as, as pastors and preachers our day and age would be an example of just an unthinking, unbiblical approach, not just in, um, not only in listening to you know, what the scriptures say in some very clear areas, like, um, like in Paul's messages to, to Timothy, but letters to Timothy, but, but also just the entire fabric and framework of what we see in scripture, uh, starting from Genesis onward. So if you, uh, if you find that provocative yourself and are challenged by that, hopefully I can convince you of that by the time we are done. But we want to, um, my approach is certainly going to be conservative. It's going to be historic. Uh, even though I, I won't be in general quoting a lot from, um, you know, from the reformers or the Puritans. I mean, there may be a few pieces here and there that I do that. Uh, by and large, my perspective is very much rooted in, in historic perspectives that you find in the early church, you find in uh, the Reformation, you find in uh, Puritan writers. So uh, that also will characterize uh, our, our lecture series. Well, let's deal with some definitions. Let's deal with some definitions. We want to spend the rest of our time considering um, some definitions of sex and gender, and we'll be, uh, we'll be going into some detail on this. So first of all, let me give you a definition of sex. So if you are taking notes, you may want to write this down. My definition is this. The idea that mankind as a race is created as and constituted by male and female. A dyadic binary. <laughs> I'll, repeat, I'll repeat that. The idea that mankind as a race is created as and constituted by male and female. A dyadic binary. Now in a second, I will what I mean by dyadic and binary. Um, but first let me clarify that I do not mean sexual union or sexual relationship or what Frankly, in, in the historic literature, the historic Christian literature has just simply been called marriage at times by using the word sex. Right? There, that is the common usage of the word sex these days. When you hear the word sex in, you know, just in culture out there in the world and even within the church, it, people often mean the sexual act. That is not how I will be using the word 
in these lecture series, in these lectures, and in this series. And the reason I will not use the word in that way is because I do not believe it is biblical to do so. I believe that using the word in this way is, in fact, a modern invention. And it tends to commoditize the activity, the sexual union. Or to say that in another way, it, it, it tends to remove the act of sexual union from the covenant of marriage and to treat it just like any other of our creaturely behaviors, like eating or drinking, or another bodily function, or, or another aspect of human behavior. That is not how the scriptures represent and picture sexual union. If I'm referring to the sexual act within marriage, I will use the phrase sexual union. Or at times, I may use biblical terms like knowing one another, or the man coming into his wife, you may think that that is archaic language, but one of the most important lessons you can learn about reading, understanding, and applying the Bible is that using biblical language is crucial. And our modern preoccupation with making the Bible more understandable by dumbing it down or removing the symbolic depth of, the, of its language is actually a domesticating process of the scriptures. You might even say taking, taking what is high and, and, and holy and belongs to man and making it of the earth, making it more beastly. And that will truncate your Christian life instead of making it more fruitful. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit further at some point about why uh, the language like a man coming into a woman may in fact be a very helpful way of talking about sexual union or marriage. Now back to my definition of sex. I use the terms male and female, obviously from Genesis 1.27, word, words that are very familiar to us, but I also use the terms binary, dyadic. And these two terms are very important. These words are similar, um, but not quite interchangeable. They have a different, a slightly different nuance to them. And that nuance is important enough that I am choosing to use both in my definition. Both words, interestingly, in their Indo-European root, both mean two. All right, so the, uh, the suffix bi or di, bi or dy, they both, in its kind of original uh, you know, stem and etymology, refer to two. But they have come to mean two in different ways. And both of these are important. Let's start with the word binary. What, what do we mean when we say that mankind is binary in, in the sense of being male and female? Well, Merriam-Webster's Webster, dictionary says that, that binary means something made of or based on two things or parts. But the word doesn't only mean two. It has the connotation of only. Two. Only two. So, when we talk about uh, the binary language of digital computing, uh, we know that binary is zeros and ones, either an on state or an off state. And as you build up uh, many different you know, bits 
of these data strings, you can actually represent almost anything with a bunch of zeros and ones. A uh, very fascinating kind of language. But it's what we call binary. It's either on or off. It's, it's either zero or one. Um, and there is, within mankind, either male or female. All right? Not male or female as two, and then, you know, you, maybe you could add other, or maybe it's arbitrary that there's two, but male or female and nothing else. There is no third sex. And this is written on our very DNA. With their XY or XX chromosomes, there is no YY chromosome. There are no XZ chromosomes. Now, bodily, this binary is reflected in the gametes that each sex produces uh, upon sexual maturation. Males produce sperm, a small gamete. Females produce eggs, a large gamete. There is no other gamete, and you can't change what you produce. We are created binary. Now, before we move on to uh, the term dyadic, um, maybe I'll a, a modern question that comes up often, and, and yet really is not completely modern. Uh, it's become modern because of the current narrative and the current kind of cultural moment in which we find ourselves and, and you know, the devil's desire to sort of bring down this binary. But that's the question of those that are termed intersex. Some of you may know that, uh, that term, uh, a term, an older term that was used that is um, that overlaps with, but is not exactly the same as intersex, is the term hermaphrodite. Some of you may have heard that term as well. So let me mention a few things about those who are intersex. Of course, the word intersex itself is interesting because it means between the sexes. Between the sexes. So even, even the word intersex connotes two sexes. Uh, and that is, in fact, the uh, is in fact what we find as represented in the literature on intersex people. So let's let me just make a few comments about uh, the phenomenon of intersex. First of all, we would recognize that uh, what are called disorders of sexual development (DSDs), um, and that that is kind of what we mean when we talk about those who are intersex, that that is of the fall, right? That without the fall into sin, you would not have disorders of the body. You would not have disorders of, um, of, of chromosomes. Uh, so that's important to understand. God did not create people in, uh, I mean, in a certain sense, you could, depending on you know, careful caveats and, 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 you know, what you meant when you said it. You, you could say that God created people intersex. You'd want to be careful about that. It, you, you, would, you would rather say that, that God created people male and female and that intersex is a result of the fall, even though intersex people are created in the image of God. All right. Um, the percentage of people that fall into this group uh, of intersex uh, is extremely small, 0.02%. I may come back to this when we talk about gender issues. There are attempts in this modern age to actually make that number a whole lot larger. <laughs> but you can't do that without greatly 
expanding the definition of what you mean by intersex in ways that really are not fitting at all. Um, what is perhaps uh, also very important about intersex people is that it is usually clear that the person is still one sex or the other. That is to say that, that intersex people may have disorder development uh, that are very, you know, very serious, very severe in some cases, but even this 0.02%, that does not mean that this 0.02% of people that, all right? And in fact, usually, and, and now I'm speaking about you know, medically speaking, uh, it is usually clear that their disorder is a dis one of the two sexes, right? It's not, it's not a disorder usually that leaves you going, well, you know, this, we, we actually have no idea whether this person is male or female. Usually it's quite clear that this is a disorder of male sexual development or this is a disorder of female sexual development. All right. Now, there is a group that is much smaller still uh, of those that would traditionally be called hermaphrodites where it may be very difficult to tell whether somebody is male or female, but that is an exceptionally, an infinitesimally small group, right? So despite attempts to the contrary, the existence of intersex people does not disprove the, the binary. In fact, in uh, sort of, you may say sort of negative ways, uh, ways that we, we wish were not there, uh, it, demonstrates the, it demonstrates the binary uh, with many, you know, feeling that they don't easily fit into that binary. Like the fact that when somebody is, is intersex, they realize something is, is wrong. There's a reason for that. They, they want clarity about, the, you know, about, about being male or female, or, or they just want this disorder of one of the sexes to, uh, to, be, you know, to be cleared up, to be fixed, so that they, uh, you know, they, don't, they don't have these aspects of disorder, or in some cases, at some level, some ambiguity. So, sex is binary. Second, secondly, uh, I also mentioned that sex is dyadic. It's dyadic. Now, as I mentioned, uh, this, this word and the suffix di, it, uh, it shares the same sort of Indo-European root, meaning two. Uh, but the way in our at least it, it's come to be used, is, is somewhat different than the root by, right? We're, of course, we get that, that suffix by in a lot of different ways, by seps, by cycle, uh, usually meaning two. Um, but where binary means only two, uh, I think that's at least generally how it is used. Dyadic tends to be used to mean a pair or two together. Right, two together. So when you think about the word dyadic, think of two, not one standing side by side, but rather of two facing each other. We might uh, say male and female were created to complement each other or to complete each other. Now, why not just use a simpler word like complementary rather than dyadic? Well, the reason is that uh, complementary, which is a great word, um, it really is not exclusive as a word. When we say that, um, that you know, male and female are complementary, 
we don't mean that in the same way that, you know, we, we might say that a certain scarf complements a blouse or a certain necktie complements a shirt. Uh, we're not saying that there are different things that fit, and this kind of fits good here, and this might fit well here, and, and one kind of makes the other looking, look good. But what we mean is rather that there are two exclusively, they, they, they complete one another, and they alone complete one another or fit with one another. It is an exclusive complementarity. This is important. And it's important to the definition of marriage. It's the, it's the ground of different roles within marriage and society for male and female. Um, it, it, it helps to push out, even as some of us heard um, on, on Saturday, it helps to push out and, and, and keep other doctrines at bay when you realize that male and female, it, it's an exclusive complementarity. There's nothing else that is needed to make male and female complete other than one another. Uh, this is exceptionally important. All right. So sex is binary and it is dyadic. So what about the word gender? The word gender has crept into our vocabulary from the world of language. Uh, we may trace some of this uh, history when we come to uh, kind of that, that historical piece that we'll get into when we talk about modern challenges. Um, but it really is, is quite a modern concept that, that, you know, that gender would be used of um, as sort of parallel to the word sex. Um, and, and in a perfect world, perhaps, we would not use the word gender at all. In fact, uh, I have worked often side by side, maybe not as much these days as I used to, but um, I used to work somewhat closely with secular uh, feminists who were also working to protect women's sex-based rights on various advocacy issues. Uh, and they called themselves often gender critical. Gender critical. And what they meant by that is that, and it comes from a certain perspective that I cannot fully share. The Christian cannot fully share. But the perspective was this, that by talking about gender as separate from sex, what it does is it invents this sort of ambiguous category that you can fill whatever you want in that category apart from the word sex. So, uh, and of course we see that today with the idea of gender identity. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a famous movie out there um, put out by Daily Wire um, and Matt. Oh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his last name. What's, what's Matt's last um, What is it? Yes, Walsh, that's right. Um, called what is what is a woman and and this is a question that i am very familiar with because for the last five or six years in the circles that i've been involved with it's one of the uh, got you questions that that all of us have used and in fact my um uh, my movement or movement's too strong of a word uh, my campaign that i started uh, maybe six years ago or something now is called uh woman means something 
woman means something. And I don't do much with that campaign anymore, but the, the point is this, that under the new rules of gender identity, you have now evacuated the concept of, of woman. Or man, but it tends to be woman <laughs> that gets evacuated. Um, we'll maybe get into reasons on, on why it is so one-sided, but no one can answer what is a woman. Why? Because the moment you define it, you exclude men. <laughs> uh, I mean, it seems so foolish even to say it, but that's the world that we're living in. So, you know, our progressive uh, leaders and, and, and influencers, they are incapable of defining woman without reference to woman. You know, they'll say something along the lines, you know, what is a woman? Well, anyone that feels like a woman. Well, you know, I learned in grade two that you can't define a word by using a word. Right? But clearly, we, uh, we've forgotten that, that grade two rule. Um, and we've arrived at this place where now we barely know anything at all. Um, so these feminists were gender critical. And, and to a certain degree, I agree that in a perfect world, we may not use the word gender at all. We, were hap you know, we, we, we got through many uh, millennia of history without using the word uh, the way we do currently, and I'm sure we could do so again. Um, but there are a couple of reasons that I continue to use the word gender, even if it is, I use it mostly interchangeably with the word sex, all right? The first uh, reason is that even though battles over language are important and often worth fighting, so I just, I mentioned how I use the word sex, and I don't use it the way that the world uses it. I don't use it to mean exclusively or predominantly sexual union. Uh, so I, I do believe some of those fights are worth fighting. I'm also a realist, and if our world talks nonstop about gender, gender it seems quite cumbersome to me to not use the word at all. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm happy to use the word gender uh, in, in a certain, um, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly happy to use it. It just seems to me to not be good apologetics, to refuse to use a word that is just, it's the rage word of the day, right? Everybody uses this word. Um, I'm happy to use it and, and to define it uh, biblically. The second reason is that even if I might mean more uh, than this with the word sex, sex tends to be an idea that is confined to the body. It tends to be used that way. When you talk about, you know, the sex of someone, you, you tend to think about the body. Uh, rather than, for instance, the psyche, the personality, roles, functions, uh, these sorts of aspects of ourselves that are perhaps maybe, maybe more ambiguous in, in a certain sense, but, but, but very important as well. And it's important for us to recognize male here this evening, or you if you are female here this evening, are not male or female X and gender if we think of these ideas, um, especially the word sex can be used this way, in terms of the body alone. So for instance, we will talk uh, in this series about how there are, uh, yeah, they're generalizations, but they're important ones, personality differences between males and females, um, differences in what, how God, what is God has created them for and how they are to evidence that image, uh, those image distinctions within the world. Uh, and these are things that are worth 
like. Our world doesn't like uh, talking about these. They tend to think of them as stereotypes or even you know, bigoted views. But they're, in fact, beautiful truths that we need to embrace. We need to understand them. We need to embrace them personally in our churches and in our culture. And the word gender tends to be easier to use for this, these non-bodily distinctions than the word sex. And so I, that's another reason why I uh, will use the word gender. In fact, uh, Merriam-Webster's dic dictionary actually, under sort of their second, secondary definition, they say this, the behavioral, cultural, or psychological traits typically associated with one sex. So that is somewhat in line with how I will use the word. With that in mind, I, uh, maybe I will leave you with, and we're going to be getting into our second lecture here uh, in, you know, not too long from now, but I do want you to think about this. I do want you to think about the fact that there is something good about your sex, about your gender. And that as you lean, understand that and as you lean into that, that will be protective in your life. That will be fruitful in your life, and it will aid your relationships. And in fact, I mean, especially it will aid your relationships in your marriage, family, if you had them. If you're a single person this evening, you need to understand this, not only though, because you will probably be married, statistically, that's true, but also because even though, and I'm giving away a little bit where I'm going here in the next lecture, to, uh, perhaps to a little uh, degree, but not, though distinctions between male and female evidence themselves in marriage in a particular and emphasized way, yet there are distinctions that hold true even apart from marriage uh, and, and these sort of family relationships that we, uh, we build and, and aim towards for in procreation. And that these things, too, are helpful for us to understand how we are created to image God in the world, to serve him. And uh, they even form an aspect of how we relate to God. And so it's important to understand and know these things for all these different aspects. For our relationship with God, for our relationships in the church, in the world, and, and, uh, and, and everything. It's important to understand that it is good that God has created us male. Let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.